HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. Guys, hello. Welcome to an episode of Processing. It's me, Zara, and my mom, Bobby. And to be completely all full full transparency, Bobby and I have had to start this episode a couple times because we have the giggles this morning, which is a good thing. Uh, and I and we know it's a, this is a grief podcast. And we talk about a lot of serious stuff on here, but it's actually nice to have had to start the podcast over three times because we can't stop giggling. So, and, and to giggle with you is is wonderful. I think of when you were little, and I used to put strawberry blow strawberries on your belly, and you would giggle and giggle and giggle. And it's fun now as you're older. When I when you sleep over, and I go into the room where you're sleeping and lie down next to you, and we laugh and talk about things. So it I really is a too. sweet, a sweet, wonderful thing to be able to laugh with you, Zara. It's nice, and I just want to quick say that it's actually raspberries, not strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> you blow raspberries on someone's stomach right i was just picturing you blowing <laughs> like blowing strawberries onto me and i was like huh i don't remember that exactly from my childhood but the raspberries yes that registers but anyway it's so nice to chat to you this morning bobby we we don't have a guest this morning and that's always you know so much of the show is about having guests and hearing about their experiences and uh, their different perspectives on grief. And it's so interesting, but I also always really love the days when we get just to chat to each other because you're so wise and you have so much experience in this field and it's just an honor to get to kind of learn from you and, and hear what you have to say. So I love a day like today and it was made better only by all our giggling <laughs> in the beginning of this episode. So in thinking about what we would talk about today, I realized that I have 50 guests a week um, in my practice. Mm. And one of the things that I share with people um, is something called the tasks of grief. And I do that because it kind of gives some structure to the, to the um, uncertainty and the chaos and the wildness of what they're feeling. And it gives them kind of a perspective, even though they're where they are at that moment, it gives them kind of not steps. It's nothing like steps. It's the work that we have to do in order to process grief. And I found this beautiful quote this week, and it said that grieving is something we do, not something that is done to us. Mm. And I say, think from, the, from that perspective, you know, we're in the process of trying to work on our grief, but at the same time, it's hard to see what we're doing. So when somebody can help you um, give some structure to that a little bit, it really is just so reassuring. Yeah, that's great. And I actually, when you were just saying that, like talking about um, the tasks rather than the, the steps, because I think sometimes when I personally think about, you know, I guess like steps or stages of grief, it feels like really like it could be really rigid. Like to me, it's felt like that. And then I think to other people, it can feel really rigid. Like, oh God, like I already went past this step because it's right. so, it's not linear <laughs> exactly. and it's like, you know what I mean? It doesn't, you don't like accomplish a step and like check that off and then it's done forever. So I like the, um, 
the thought of it being tasks rather than steps because you can constantly come back to it. Exactly. A task, right? And sometimes like we do, we multitask when we're cooking, right? We're doing many tasks at the same time. We have a lot of things going on at the same time. But right. you don't realize, we never kind of realize what we're doing until we look back. Really, it's very hard to be mindful during such a um, tremendously traumatic time. It's just very, yeah. very hard to have perspective. So one of the things about grief is that it really is about accepting the reality of the loss over and over and over and over again. Yeah, so you say that a lot. And I have tried to say that to other people too. Like, And it's it's hard, even like years, decades down the line. Sometimes somebody said to me one time when they were thinking about their after their dad passed away, they're like, I just keep thinking like, are you still dead? You know, like, aren't you like ready to come back yet? Right. And so like that, just uh, that always sticks with me. And I think that sometimes too, when I think about dad, I'm just like, or the people that I've lost, I'm like, are you still dead? Like, how long is this going to last for? It's, it's true. And we often talk about time traveling and we, because we time travel, we almost feel like the person is with us. And then it's so hard to believe that they're really not because we've had a dream about them or a, a daydream about them. So, but in a way, there's something called the dual process of grief. And it means that we are working on what we've lost, but we're also trying to be in life again. And I always tell people that in the beginning, all we can do is feel the grief. It's just overpowering. It's overwhelming. It blinds us. And then slowly, slowly, breath by breath, step by step, we begin to walk into our life. And eventually, we're hopefully learning to live with the grief because that would be the goal. We don't want to not have it. We can't stuff it anywhere and make it go away. You know, we, we want to find a way to live with it. In the beginning, it's hard to live with. It feels impossible to bear. And so part of it is that there's an avoidance, obviously, in believing that it's true in the beginning. And that's what we, we know about denial and um, the protective um, turtle shell that we've talked about. But over time, we begin to assimilate the reality. And every day, it's just a little bit more. Of, and then we go back and forth, like you say. It's not just today, I, I believe it this much, and tomorrow will be more. We right, go back, not, and, forth, and, back like and forth and yeah. back and forth and back and forth. Is it kind of like how, you know, when you we hear about people being like, I got shot, but I didn't even realize it for like, you know what I mean? For an hour until I looked and I saw my arm was bleeding. Mm. Or like for me, when I was in my accident, I remember like, getting out of the bus and like my hand was like ripped off and I didn't even notice, you know what I mean? I was just like focused on getting away from the bus that was burning. Mm -hmm. Um, So is it kind of like that, that it's like almost your, your body and your brain's defense mechanism is to have to process it slowly, like in, in that same kind of way, but like emotionally. Exactly. And I've talked about this in terms of the turtle principle. And I, I know, you know, I love turtles. And the reason is, is because, the turtle shell protects us, but when mm. we're ready, we stick our head out, and then it goes back in again, and then it goes out, and it goes back in again. So it's this constant assimilation, moment by moment by moment, and all the accommodations we have to make. There's so many adjustments, so many changes. So I like this model. Um, the person who uh, devised it was called his name is Robert Niemeyer, and he's a really wonderful grief um, theory person. He's written many books. So mm. he talks about the tasks of grief, and I'd like to discuss those today and the perspective of food as goes mm, along with yes. it. So, because I think that's really important. So, um, the first one, as we said, is acknowledging the reality of the loss, and there's an unending confrontation, moment by moment. There are so many things both going on internally that remind us of the reality and externally. I mean, you could walk in your house and you could see everything you look to, it reminds you. Um, I work with a lot of spouses, you know, who have lost their, their lifelong partners or, or maybe even a partner for five years, but they shared a life together. So everywhere in the house are things that remind them this unending confrontation. You know, what's interesting. And just to talk about that for a second is that, yes, of course, spending a lifetime with somebody or years is, I mean, just wild, like, and then losing someone. It's a, it's something I can't even imagine. Um, but there's this other thing about, you know, if you've only been with somebody or known them for a short time, it's also this very, like this other interesting way of, you know, this other interesting kind of pain in that, like you are mourning 
like a life that maybe never happened yet. You know, you're dating somebody for six months and they pass away um, or even you break up, you know what I mean? And then like the the grieving and the loss is like this whole different thing. Of the future that you didn't get to have. But I think what we're talking about now is the different things that hit us, that remind us that the loss has happened. No, I know. I'm just saying and accepting a reality of like any loss. It's like accepting with someone who maybe you didn't share so much time with that, like it, that time will never happen. Right. You know, that you won't get to do X, Y, and Z things. Yeah. just wanted to interject with you're, that. You're absolutely right. An interesting point. And there's so many different ways you could be walking down the street and just see a couple and say that, mm-hmm. you know, that could have been me. You see, well, people right, do that exactly. all the time. They see, yeah. um, they see their life that they didn't get to have. Right. And as someone I haven't had, I mean, I've had, of course, been in relationships, but no, like really, really long relationships, but I still, you know, i I can relate to this kind of thought process, even despite that. So I just thought it would be worth mentioning. So no matter what it is, everywhere you look, there are signs to remind you that this loss has happened. And the loss that's so impossible to conceive of, you have to bit by bit, by bit, begin to accept it. So in terms of, you know, for somebody going into the supermarket, you know, and I used to buy you know, he used to like bacon and I, right. and now I want to buy it, even though he's not here. Or so many people say they have breakdowns. We've even had guests that have told us they have breakdowns in the supermarket because there's so much life in a supermarket. The people that you see, the foods that you were used to having. For um, sure. It's triggering. And Amelia uh, Nurberg had written that wonderful article for the New York Times, one of our earliest guests. Um, and she had been interviewing uh, widowed people who said that, you know, at meal, I believe the name of the article, the title of the article is for many widows, mealtime is the hardest part. And that went into great detail about people who were triggered in the supermarket after they lost their partner. Exactly. Yeah. And and how many times people have said to me, there's no reason to cook anymore. And, you know, Mm. I'm looking at this beautiful human being in front of me that deserves to have fresh, healthy food. And yet they can't see that at that moment. They can't see that there's any reason for them to cook for themselves. So all these things are triggers to, and of course the anniversaries and the birthdays and the holidays and all those things, each time is another hit of reality over and over again. So you can see that the task of acknowledging the reality of the loss runs through forever. It, like you say, it can be years later and it's hard to imagine. So the next task, which we have talked about in depth, you know, has to do with opening yourself to the pain. And this is mm. something that you have um, have discussed so many times about the importance of, you know, giving yourself the space, not worrying what other people think, um, being able to survive it. You know, mm-hmm. it can be talk about the middle of the night. It can be every night can feel like a middle of the night when, you know, you have to deal with scary feelings and thoughts. And so opening yourself to the pain is like kind of riding waves out in the sea. And when it gets really rough out there, you know, how am I going to survive this next big wave? How am I going to do this? Because ultimately you don't want to go under, you know, part of you feels, what am I living for? But you don't really want to die from it. Um, So being able to ride those waves. Yeah. I mean, like you have essentially two options in some ways when you're going through something like this, you can like literally sink or swim, you know what I mean? And you are you know, we're wired to swim. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. I mean, I always try to think about like, it's so hard to know in the moment when you're going through something deeply painful, a grief experience or a really traumatic loss of like, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to be like, well, I'm going to really use this someday. Right. Right. Someday this will be very useful to me. It's just not, practical advice to say to somebody someday you'll use this but you know it does work like that and someday it does provide you with utility and more tools in your tool tool belt to kind of um in, in ways that are like completely unexpected so you know I think that like in kind of accepting where you are and your feelings at the time and embracing the loss in a way is just like a, it's allowing yourself to be like, I am in a shitty situation. You know what I mean? I'm in a shitty situation. And like you said, it doesn't mean you have to, it has to, your life has to be over, but accepting that like, 
And just saying that out loud, I found that actually one thing that helped me when my kind of my darkest time was just being able to be like, when people were like, how are you? You know, kind mm-hmm. of small talk. I'd be like, I'm pretty bad. Yeah. You know, yep. I'm pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And that, that allowed me to feel like both things could exist. I could admit that I was bad and I could continue living until one day I could say earnestly, I'm okay, or I'm good, you and, know? And that's what this is about, is that part about continuing to live, you know, because right. there's that concept I was talking about before, the dual model, where you're grieving and you're also desperately trying to move ahead and live at the same time, and mm. how the two collide with each other. Sometimes, you know, you can't help but just be in all the grief, particularly in the beginning. It's overwhelming. And then sometimes people say to me, "I, I today I didn't even think about it. I can't believe it. And I feel so bad that I didn't think about it. Right. So we keep going at these different paces. And then the the weird feeling of how you could be grieving and, and wanting to die and base it yourself. And also, you know, seeing things around you that makes you want to live and how you could have that duality of feelings at the same time. So very interesting. I found some, I found a wonderful poems when I was thinking about this poems that I always had posted on my wall in my waiting room and now people don't come to my waiting room now so the poems are sitting there and I want to read one of them this is amazing this is a roomy poem and it's called bird wings and it says your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working expecting the worst you look and instead here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see your hands opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were a fist always closed, you would be paralyzed. And you try to stretch it open. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding, the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. Which means that we do both at the same time, right? We contract and expand at the same time. And so in order to do that, you have to be open to your pain because if you're not, you get stuck and you don't open and close and you are paralyzed. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that like, it's such a natural, I mean, there's like no right way to, to do this. You know, there's no right way. There's no, and, and making, I don't want to even say mistakes, like falling down as part of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's so natural to want, like for some people, for many people to be like, when something traumatic happens, just be like, okay, I'm fine. I'd like to move past this. I don't want to talk about it. We all have different coping mechanisms, you know? Unfortunately, I feel like doing that eventually, it just allows it to stay with you for longer than you'd like. You know what I mean? And then and not in a positive way. Because right. I think like your grief staying with you, it will be with you forever. And that's a good thing. That's a normal but thing. But you want to integrate it. Yeah. I think like pushing it away initially and not just being like, I'm shitty. I'm in pain. I don't want to get out of bed today. You know what I mean? And giving yourself the room to like really not be okay for a minute. And and that knowing that that's okay. I feel like by not doing that delays the healing process, Right. you know? And also remembering, you know, that these tasks are going to be done in different ways by different people. You know, for some people, opening up to the pain does not happen for two years. Right. You know, sometimes they just have to rope. Maybe they have kids that have to take care of and they don't take the time. They can't. They can't afford it to take the time to do that. There's no, like, again, there's no right way. That's why Mm -hmm. I like, I really like what you're talking about, about tasks rather than steps. Mm -hmm. Because you can, you know, you can come back to these tasks at any point and they can start at any point, you know. I just think it's important to rem- to remember if you're somebody listening who is, you know, grieving that it's okay. Like, you know, it really is okay to not be okay. It really is. And I know that has to be different for everybody. You mentioned people who have kids. It's very different. I'm sure me being a single person who lives alone, my, um, if, if I experience a loss, the way that I can be in the world is certainly going to be different than someone who has, you know, children and has to kind of like show up for them. I realize that in a way, like me saying it's okay to not be okay. Or a job, feelings or a job that privileged. they can't afford yeah, to lose. exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's very different, but maybe there's just small ways and different ways in which you can not be okay in the ways, you know what I mean? Like with safe people, with exactly. in private, with, you know, community. And there's a, there's an equation which has to do with opening your to pain 
and taking care of yourself and having self-care because the two of those actually make it possible to deeply feel those feelings without completely, you know, getting sick, physically sick, or, you know, not being able to function in your life. So the self-care, I always talk to people about relax and release, you know, relax being slowing down your mind, release, having some way to let the energy of grief out. Because when you can do those two things, then you, you can open up to your pain more. And one of the subjects in terms of food and opening up to your pain that we've talked about is that sometimes people, food is a comfort and sometimes they don't eat at all. They can't, their body is in such tension and tightness that there's no way the digestive tract is working. Yeah. That's like me when I'm in, when I'm having emotional pain, I like can't eat anything. And um, how many people I've talked to that um, are baking cookies or cakes or or food and there's, there's no one, they give them away. Yeah. I have this one woman, she bakes and bakes for hours and she gives it all away because she needs to bake. That's how she's helping yeah. deal with the loss of her husband and her daughter in her life, you know? So food, again, related into this um, task of grief. I have another poem. I'm going to interweave these poems because they're very special to me. And, yeah, um, I love when you read poems. This is by David White, who's a, a wonderful contemporary poet um, from the Northwest. And this is called The Well of Grief. Um, and it fits into opening yourself to pain. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Hmm. That's beautiful. So the well of grief, I I use that terminology um, in... uh, our accumulative losses. And I've said it before on the show, we have this well of grief where all our losses are. And so we do need to slip beneath the surface in the well. And that's how we come up with the, with the coins, the glimmering coins somehow. I love that. So the next task, so we so far have acknowledged the reality of the loss, open yourself to the pain. And the next one is learning to live without that person in the world. Mm, So that's a really tough one. Yeah. You know, we have this assumption, right? That we're going to wake up in the morning and the next day is going to be the same. And mm. pretty much, you know, we, like you said, we have choices. We maybe will feel, look at it this way or that way, but ultimately everything's going to be where it was when we went to sleep at night. And when you have a loss, it's not like that, right? The, the whole sense of the loss of predictability leaves us with a sense of um, randomness and vulnerability, extreme vulnerability. That's the thing, actually, the, you use the word randomness. I think that to exist in life, we all have these different ways, whether it be religion or whether it be, you know, uh, nihilism, honestly, whatever it is, some way to wrap your, yeah, like to wrap your head, for, I mean, from the spectrum of nihilism to extremely, you know, uh, extreme religious fundamentalism, right? right? There's right. like this wide spectrum of how people exist in the world and like organize it in their head you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and when somebody passes away or if you yourself have like a traumatic life event like an accident or Mm -hmm. an illness or Mm -hmm. something it does like it's that little crack where like it's almost like the Truman show you know that movie the Truman show and like you find out that you're actually like your reality isn't real you know what I mean um and and you remember that death is real and that it's life is extremely chaotic and the universe is gigantic and that is so overwhelming I think that that's that's a huge part of like I mean a big part of it is of course losing someone you love but the other part is like the realization that like there's so much chaos and everything is fragile and like our own existence which sometimes we hate and are pained by is fragile you know and that's a really scary part of it it's our own mortality called into question and our own sense of safety and all the time that passed when we didn't have to think about that. That's something that makes me sad. Sometimes when I kind of have depressed feelings is that like, Oh my God, I remember I used to be a person who didn't have to think about all of this, Exactly. you know, exactly. and I'll never be that person again. And that's sad too. You know, you know, I, I got this image. Um, I remember I had this man once in my practice and he had three little kids and his wife died and she was young, 35 and he was left with the kids. And he always talked about putting his feet down, off the bed onto the ground and what that felt mm. like. And so I got that image of the ground not being there. Right. Yeah. 
and it's just not Ooh, there. So yeah. learning to live without that person in the world, you, you slowly, slowly begin to have a, a ground, you know, mm. a, a, any little bit of ground. You know, mm. He used to say, if I found one slipper at the bottom of the bed, that was okay. Maybe it wasn't yeah. two, you know, if there was a, um, a, a spoonful of laundry detergent to do the 10 loads of wash, that would be enough. So slowly, slowly, that was a good example, really, of him slowly, slowly, slowly trying to learn to live without his partner in his life or the person in his world and become a, a human again, you know, to actually feel like a human being again. So, mm. you know, God. yeah. That's really hard. It's really, it's really challenging, even like, a, even in a breakup sense or a divorce, you know, that's like such a a difficult thing to like reimagine your life. And I, I really do think also, I mean, we've talked about heartbreak on the show before, but you know, it's, it's very different obviously. And not to compare the two because like, you know, losing someone when somebody dies that you love, it's very different, but there's also this very, like when you talk about this stuff, I'm, you know, we're talking about picturing life without that person in it. I think a lot about heartbreak. Mm -hmm. and divorce mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. it is for people when they're suddenly just without their partner for that of reason course, I mean, that's such course. a huge huge source of, source of grief for so many people so just to acknowledge that you or know? if your house burnt down you know, you remember, yeah. or you lose a job you know really exactly. big change is like exactly. really intense so learning to live without what we've lost let's change it from person in a way you know to what we've lost in the world learning to live without it i always i have this quote i've had it for years i don't even know who it's from and it says Time alone does not heal. It's the loyalty to life that helps us heal. Time alone will not give us this moment, only our willingness to be alive again. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And actually, I think about like when I closed Brucey, which was such a big part of my life. And I was so, in a way, happy to close it because I was so exhausted and burnt out by it. And there was ways in which it changed me that I didn't like. But when it was gone, you know, I, I, I've flailed for like years in a way and not like so much professionally, but just personally, like I felt like my identity was like, so called into question. I didn't know who I'd be or what I'd be or like how all of that even happened in the first place. It was such a confusing time. And just the other day, like I thought back to like the years, like 2016 through 2018 and I was like well I kind of like cringed a little bit at myself mm -hmm. and then I was like well you know what like give yourself a break like look what you learned and what you did during that time and and where you are now and I feel good now and yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do that without some of those you had to go through all that. cringy times yeah. you yeah. know you had to live with the pain it's how it is yeah and I it think how, if it's the, how it is. It, I wouldn't choose to do it again if someone was like would yeah. you like these uh, years of right. your life to be this way I'd be like no thank you but you know, but that imagery of the tapestry, they're all a part of our tapestry. And I think of Death of a Salesman yeah. as a perfect example. Uh, that yeah, of course. It's an amazing, amazing play. You know, mm. how how the the, the loss of, of something in your life, anything in your life, can cause you to lose your sense of self. So yeah. that's what this third task is. It's learning to actually live without that person in the world. You know, going to a restaurant for the first time, you know, with without them. Making meals yeah. for yourself. Totally. And like... I think the thing is, is like, there's like expectation that like, you're supposed to get back to a certain plateau, or it's like, once I, once I do this, you know what I mean? I'll be my old self again, or I'll feel this way again. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you probably never will be that exact person again, but you might be better, or you might not be better you definitely will probably just be different. Exactly. And I, I, I've actually like no better been talking worse. a lot to a good friend of mine recently about this. And he's like, he's like, I just feel like a shell of my former self. I feel like, you know, I just need to get back to being the guy I used to be before all this stuff happened. Mm. And I'm like, I hate to tell you, right. but like, you never will. What happened has changed you. Right. Let's hope that this terrible experience you've been going through for the past couple of years when you're able to come to terms with it has changed you and you aren't that guy. Why right. would you want to be that guy anymore? Yeah, exactly. Not that the guy before was bad, but you're a smarter version. Now you've gone through so much, like let's use this. So you're like an, an even bigger, better version of, of yourself after, you which come is back really the sixth task. And it's okay because it's hopping around all the time, which is who am I now? Mm. You know, 
I'm fine. Right. Fine. I've, I've had to relearn myself. I've had to relearn my life. I've had to, in many cases to reinvent myself. You right. Know? So, and this new identity is appropriate to now. I can't go back to the old identity. No, you can't go back. Yes. That's a, yeah. that's another grief though. Right. It's not just losing the person, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's like losing who you, who you were. Yeah. And all, all, I think that causes a lot of anger. And that's something we don't talk about that much is like, you know, I mean, obviously we talk about anger as being a stage of grief, but not just angry that the person died or you broke up or whatever, but like angry at the fact that like they, that experience then changed you when you maybe didn't mm-hmm. want to change. Exactly. Well, you didn't to want say anything, to change. We don't want things to change. We just want them to, you know, but it's just like, fuck no, you I know. for dying. Exactly. I that's was the- liked me then. Yeah. Now I'm this person. I know. And like, fuck you for that. And yeah. you know what? It's okay to say fuck you for that. Which that's okay. Which is working on unresolved issues, which is the fifth task of grief. And you can see how these all related. But going mm. back to living without the person in the world, I was just thinking about at, of clients that I've worked with, where you know one dear dear person, actually uh, one of the guests of our show, a tree fell on her house after her wife died. A tree. Mm. She had to learn how to navigate that. I mean, I remember people telling me about all the things that have happened to them, floods and. Um, things that they have to deal with that they used to from little things like oh I didn't know how to put in a spark plug in or you know I didn't yeah. know how to charge my car or to right. big things like a tree fell in our house and what am yeah, how do I do this and how do I live you know you used to be my person you know mm. and how do I do this so yeah it's it's terrible no. it's really hard but you know you said something so profound in one of our earlier sessions it was when we had Donna Orr back on the show and you looked at her and you said, what do you do with the love? Mm, I think and I said, yeah, son, like, where does the love, love go? go? It was her son's death. So learning to live without that person, I was thinking about the loss of a child. I mean, my God, you know, what do you do with all that love? How do you live? How do you learn to live without that, without them? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, that's the other, that's the other part. Like a, well, kind of going back to what I was saying, like, feeling upset about who you are now and it's like or like frustrated with the person for like dying or or leaving because you know of who then you're forced to become but it's like also very annoying uh when you think about what are you supposed to do with the love you had for them because you like there's something that feels good in us giving love to somebody else or like adoring somebody parenting them being a partner being a friend you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. that feels good and like when when somebody dies or goes away that part of you that that part of you that feels validated by getting to be thoughtful or loving or massaging someone's feet or making sure they have a note in their lunch Mm -hmm. or being their mom you know what I mean like that is such a loss in yourself in getting to be that person to yourself right like yes that is so because it feels good to be loving, yes, you know, generally exactly. speaking. It, yeah. And, and it turn, it's a part of us that we can be proud of. Yes. And I think that like when, you know, these kinds of things happen, these major losses happen, you lose that part of you that you feel like you can be proud of, yes. you know, like the person we talk about not wanting to cook anymore because it's like, well, I was proud that I could cook for you and nourish you. Right. So if you lose someone permanently, and there is no kind of other place to put that kind of, you know, care and emotion and, and concern and love. Like, you know, it's hard to find a way to turn it inward. It's hard to find a way to reappropriate it. And it hurts to lose the good parts of ourselves. Exactly. You know? I love that these this, this model of these tasks is so important because everything you're saying is another task. In other words, continuing bonds which we've mm. talked about a lot on the show, we're going to talk about next, or finding new meaning. You know, these are the tasks, that's the seventh task. So moving from learning to live without that person in the world, continuing bonds. And this is something that our show kind of um, celebrates, you know. Yeah, for sure. You know, how do we um, preserve the um, essence of what we loved about that person? And how can we do it through food? You know, making recipes of, of the things that they loved, you know, following their recipes. Um, I had a client this week tell me it was her husband's birthday and it was so focused on birthday cake. It's all that mattered. She was going to, all by herself, she had a Caravel cake with a candle. Oh, that's and so it was nice. beautiful. It wasn't It wasn't just sad. It was bittersweet. It was so sweet that she did that. 
And I often think of Kathy, who we talk about so much on our show, and how one of the things that she did um, is to create set the table, right? Yeah, to set the table, right? Exactly, to set the table for two. And, and well, for one, she for sets one, the table. Right. Yeah, yeah. For um, herself, she for makes herself, it nice exactly. for herself. She exactly. has a really. Kathy has had a really difficult time in her life between many different kinds of really traumatic losses and different round battles with different kinds of cancer. And she lights candles for herself and Mm -hmm. does that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes doing these kinds of things that are getting back into like self-care and, or getting back into a ritual of cooking or eating or thinking about the person through food is too hard. And I'm thinking about, I actually just wrote an essay um, for Dana Cowan's upcoming zine. And, uh, she had asked me, and this is in the side notes of the essay that is going to be in print. Um, it's, she said like, Hey, can you take a picture of this sandwich that I had, I'd written an essay about a sandwich I made for my dad, the last sandwich. And she wanted me to take a picture of the sandwich. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I kept putting it off. And I'm not someone who tends to put things off. Like I'm usually just like, okay, I'll just do this. But it was so sad for me and so hard for me to put together that sandwich. It really mm-hmm. reminded me of my dad. It was very triggering. So yeah. I had called my friend Steve, who I've worked with for like a decade, and he just came over. I was like, I really need you to help me just like make this. Yes. He's like, all right, I'll come over after work. And he just helped me put it together. Mm-hmm. And we made it. And then I squished it and threw it away. And it wasn't like, I made it. I, I got the courage right. to make it. I made it. And I it's ate it. It's not always sweet. Delicious. It's often bitter. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And like, to be frank, like, I don't have a desire to make that sandwich or eat it ever mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. You know that's what I mean? Okay. I exactly. Yep. There are other things that my dad did or made, as we talked about last week, that I love thinking about and doing. That just like isn't, in, I'm not interested in that. But I was glad that like I faced a fear and I didn't feel like I wanted to do it alone. So I asked someone to help and it really did help. You yeah, know, that's beautiful. So phone a friend sometimes. Yeah, exactly. So, but the thing about continuing bonds is that we like to think that death transforms our relationships. It doesn't end them. Mm. And that is a process. That yeah, doesn't happen overnight. That's a good way of putting it. That doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. So, you know, there's something in the, um, in the wording of tasks of grief, which is important because a task is something that you want to get done, right? Like, hey, it's Saturday and I have kind of a bunch of tasks I want to do around the house. I, I'd like to change a light bulb I'd like to put air in my tires. You know what I mean? I, I want to get garbage bags. So you could essentially, you could live without the air in your tires, right? You could probably not get garbage bags. You could just throw your trash in, on the lawn. You could just sit in the dark and not change the light bulb. But a task is like something that you like want to do because it kind of helps your life move better, right? Exactly. So like you don't have to do Mm-hmm. any of this stuff mm-hmm. you know what I mean however I, I think it happens naturally have, yeah we all have these little it doesn't actually happen naturally for a lot of people I know a lot of people who haven't processed their grief in any of these ways and mm-hmm. like their loss happened years ago I think that like um we all have this very little bit of time on earth and terrible 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 things happen mm. to people that we love and to us and it's very fucking awful and like then we're left with this decision of how do I want to spend whatever little time I have left here? How much, how much joy do I want to try to cultivate? How much more do I want to do? And then you have to ask yourself the question, well, what do I have to do to kind of make that possible at a certain point? And a task is doing something that isn't necessarily essential to live but makes your life run more smoothly and makes things kind of better. And I think that's an interesting point as to like yes. what we're talking about today. And I'd like to make a comment on there's doing the tasks and moving through them, but there's how we do them and how we move through them. So I talk a lot about mindfulness in grief and mm-hmm. mindfulness in grief really just means awareness. It means that a part of us can be aware of what we're doing while we're doing it. We can't always do that. But as often as we can, it's very helpful. So in other words, you talked about the tasks of the house. You know, if we have a task of washing the dishes, we can just wash the dishes and get it over with. But mindfully washing the dishes is noticing what you're doing, feeling the water, being present in the moment. So it's, I think it's a really important concept of, of mindfulness and grief where 
all of these things we're talking about, all these tasks are so, like you say, they're so hard. They're so, so hard. And yet if we can be present for them, we can move through them in a much right. different way. Totally. Yeah. So the next task is I'm working on unresolved issues and that's, look, there's guilt left. There's, there's um, resentment, there's anger, um, there's forgiveness that sometimes we want to do or not. But one of the best things I can, I want to go through this fairly briefly, but to say that Ira Bylock, he wrote a book called the four essential things. He was a bereavement um, hospice specialist and these are the four things. So if anybody has a pen and paper right now, write them down because these okay. things can help us heal relationships, can really help us to, um, towards the end of somebody's life and also after they've died. And they are. These are the four essential things. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. And I think the best way to talk about, you know, unresolved issues are those four essential things. But, you know, mm. food, this this the issue is about food. And we said that before. You said with your own dad that you felt angry with him at times that he ate the way he did or didn't take care of himself. And that brought yeah. up, you know, that was unresolved. You know, those feelings of, um, and and often people will say that particularly if somebody had a heart attack or cancer or something like that. And right. They, you're left with um, frustrations and resentments and, and they have to work them through. It's part of the task, one of the tasks of grief. So the next task is one that we talked about before. And I think it's so powerful, which is who am I now? Mm-hmm. And I often, when I'm working with somebody, this is a, um, a classic exercise in psychotherapy and groups, which is that you look at a person and you say, who are you? Who are you? It's like, who are you, Zara? Who are right. you, Zara? And you just keep answering the question. And it's like layers of an onion. It's a very mm. powerful thing. So the question, who am I, is a huge yeah. question. And who am I now? Because I'm trying to not only find myself, but reinvent myself, as we said. And um, so I think with food, it can be, you know, what do I like to eat? How right. do I like to eat? I know Rob and I are very different the way we eat, my husband and myself. You know, he likes three meals. I would be happy having, you know, breakfast for dinner and you know, <laughs> not eating lunch and whatever, but you know, you learn yeah. to become like the other person. And so then all of a sudden there's this question, well, who am I now? You know, what right. do I like to eat? I don't really like what we were doing. I mean, I compromised and it was fine. And it was okay, but who am I? And on so exactly. many levels, on so many levels, including food. So interesting. Like I don't even like bananas and I eat them every day. You know, it's just an interesting, I mean, that's kind of a joke, but it's like an interesting time to, yeah, like re-examine, like, your own desires like you know it's it's a weird kind of a weird thing I bet but also very interesting if you're able to you know look at it if you're feeling able to look at it in that way with curiosity and I think the most uh to me they're all least you can see all these tasks are important and again they're not linear but the last and seventh one is finding new meaning mm. now what that means is that you you talk about identity before you know whether it's as a parent as a spouse as a sibling as a a daughter or son you know and in some ways we have to um, change that it's not like replacing somebody obviously finding new meaning doesn't mean i find a new parent or i find a new husband or i find a new child obviously that's not it at all but it's for yourself you know what is the meaning of life and sometimes that's so Mm. shaken it's so shaken in a time of loss in a time of tragic life a loss or renewed meaning and something that was right. meaningful you, exactly. to you before. Exactly. You know, I always tell the story about somebody I had many years ago who, who lost her only child and she um, always wanted to be a dancer because her father who had died was a dancer and so, you know, liked to dance. So mm-hmm. she took mm-hmm. up dancing. It saved her life. It oh, saved so her sweet. life. The meaning of dance. She ended up dancing in front of groups and um, it became her life. And I love that. Yeah. So finding new meaning is really, really powerful. And I think it can be through food too, creating new food rituals. Many of our guests have talked about how, absolutely, you know, family meals have become more important or learning how to cook, you know, itself. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And of course, Victor- finding a new thing that you, you know, and a lot of times like, you know, painful and traumatic experiences and grief it does make it too difficult to have certain foods again. And mm-hmm. like maybe instead of the goal being like, I really should be able to have bolognese again. Why can't I? I need to just finally get my 
fuck it. Maybe you don't ever eat bolognese again, but you find out about amatriciana. You know what I mean? And that becomes a new sauce that you love. So it's like not mm. necessarily that you have to get back to the point where like everything was the same, but maybe there is still joy. Maybe that like same feeling of joy you got from eating something can just be to something new that you enjoy. And you don't have to force yourself to get back into the headspace where you have to be able to do those certain things that you used to do. And you'll never do that again. But, you know, finding new meaning, it's so, so deep because obviously when we have a loss, it really feels like our meaning is shattered. Hmm. So it's almost like you're, you're creating a monument, you know, in, to yourself. And all these tasks have been creating a new monument, you know, of what life means. So right. I found a really, um, this actually, I didn't just find it. It's on my wall. My friend, Anne, who's also a fellow bereavement specialist, of gave course, me this Anne. as a sign. And I have it on my wall and I want to read it to you now. It's called, The Thing Is, okay. to love life, to love it, even when you have no stomach for it. And everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands. Your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, it's tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weighs you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, you think. How can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again. Mm, that's very beautiful. I love that. Well, Bobby, this was a great show. And it was really wonderful to hear your perspective and to learn more about the tasks of grief. And I hope that it, uh, that the listeners are, you know, you guys are perceiving it kind of the same way that I was, which is that it feels like a way less um, rigid and... Um, structured, you know, way of, of handling, um, a traumatic loss or, or, of grief or it's the work any we do. kind of, yep. it's the work yeah, we do. it feels like just a good guideline for things that can be helpful without putting a pressure or a timeline on things, you know? And what I said before, I think it does happen naturally. I think mm. when you open up to the feelings, all those other things yeah. happen naturally. It's not yeah. anything you have to, it's not a technique or a, per, you know, a, Right. Um, of course. Exactly. Anything a, like that. It's really, program. it's an organic thing that it's happens. It's natural. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, like you said, like opening to the, opening up to the grief and the pain is kind of the first part of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, that is, that might take some, some work, but you know what the thing is, is we are, we can do hard things. You know what I mean? We really can. And I think the anticipation of what it will feel like if you open yourself up to, to grief is so wild sometimes. And often, I think more often than not, things are not as terrible. Like, like that kind of thing is not quite as terrible as you think it would be. It's worse and not as bad at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's worth trying to do the work because there is a lot of, there is a lot to live for. It may be worse in that first poem we read, it may be worse to be paralyzed, you know? So, um, I have a favorite to ask you, Zara. At the oh end, God! At the end, at the end of every um, episode, we always like mm. to have a, di- a feast, mm-hmm. and I would like you to bring all the food. I am I'm oh, very tired well, today. Me, no, but listen, I want you to bring it from your Zaza pop up this week, which okay. is a Sicilian menu, which I was mm. just so enamored of, and I would love to have it. So, could you tell us what you're going to bring to the our supper? Okay, sure. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I will bring, we made delicious potato and pepper caponata with soft boiled egg on top. So I'll mm. bring some of that. Um, we have a d- absolutely delicious um, chicken thighs that are braised with apricots and olives and marsala wine, mm, which I mm, think mm. you would really like. Yeah. And a lasagna a la norma with roasted eggplant and roasted tomatoes and bechamel and ricotta. And then for dessert, cannoli cake, of course. Mm, okay. So do you mind stromboli. if I don't cook and you bring it all? I would love that, Bobby. I'll be over later. Can't wait to see your car pull up in the driveway. I love you, Mama. Thank you. you. This was really wonderful. And uh, folks, take care of yourselves and each other. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. 
But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, we are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.